Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy at East Tennessee State University. It is uh, kind of an autumnal September 19th here in Mountain Home, Tennessee. Uh, I want to talk about a couple FDA approvals on today's podcast. So on September 17th, a mere two days ago, the FDA, as well as regulatory bodies from Canada and Australia, granted accelerated approval to pembrolizumab and lenvatinib for advanced endometrial cancer. This is something called Project Orbis. Which sounds like something out of like a Marvel movie, maybe. But the FDA, Canada, and Australia approved this together. That's the Project Orbis is, is for these three regulatory agencies to approve something together. So shout out to all of our listeners in uh, Canada and Australia. So this specifically is based off of Kino 146, which we'll talk more about later. And the approval is for advanced endometrial cancer that is not microsatellite instable or deficient in mismatch repair deficit, mismatch repair uh, for patients who ha- have disease after at least one systemic treatment and they're not a candidate for curative surgery or radiation. So metastatic endometrial cancer after first-line platinum therapy is basically the way uh, you cut this down. Now, I don't know that we've talked about endometrial cancer on this podcast. Uh, we probably talked about it as far as tamoxifen can cause endometrial cancer, but we haven't talked about treatment of endometrial cancer. So um, it's a little surprising because it's the most common gynecologic oncologic oncologic <laughs> the most common gynecologic cancer uh, in the United States. Over sixty thousand cases a year in the United States, but only eleven thousand deaths a year, which um, should give you a clue that the death rate is fairly low. Only about 8% of patients uh, present with distant or metastatic disease, and that's because they're diagnosed early because the first sign, or the most common sign, is is vaginal bleeding, and these are women who should not have menstrual periods because they're postmenopausal, uh, by and large. Uh, so as far as, um, you know, that's, that's pretty much, you know, what we see with endometrial cancer, uh, it's primarily a surgical disease followed by either external radiation therapy or brachytherapy, where they place radiation in the vagina to release uh, into the endometrium. That's for high-risk patients, and then for the very high-risk patients, they can receive adjuvant carboplatin paclitaxel. But again, that's the minority. Most of the time, this is just uh, hysterectomy, salpingo-oophorectomy, and that's the, the treatment for these women. In the metastatic setting, carboplatin paclitaxel, uh, is the standard first line for those who didn't receive adjuvant chemo, plus or minus trastuzumab if it's HER2 amplified. Uh, and then we use hormonal therapy as well because this is, if you look at the risk factors for endometrial cancer, they mirror the risk factors for breast cancer, lifetime estrogen exposure. Uh, so treatment consists of progesterone, like medroxyprogesterone alternating with tamoxifen or magestral acetate alternating with tamoxifen. There's some interesting kind of theoretical framework here that... Um, the uh, progesterone altering with tamoxifen is effective and has to do with tamoxifen upregulating the expression of progesterone receptors. So that's why you alternate the progestin and the tamoxifen. Um, pembrolizumab is, is a possibility uh, treatment option for those who have uh, microsatellite instability high or mismatch repair deficiencies. Uh, and about 30% of patients have that, and that's uh, Similar to the Lynch syndrome, that's a little bit more common here in Appalachia. Uh, Iphosmide paclitaxel can be used for one of the variants of endometrial cancer, the carcinosarcoma, and we're not even getting into uterine sarcomas where anthracyclines are uh, the first line uh, treatment. So back to this approval, Keynote 146. There's like half of this has been published in Lancet Oncology in 2019. 
um, the, uh, an N of 53 is, is released. So they, they published the results of this for 53 patients. What the FDA approval describes is a total co cohort of 108 patients, but if you remove those who are microsatellite, who were not microsatellite instable and did not have mismatch repair deficiencies, the number drops down to, I think, 94. So these were about 90 plus women with metastatic or advanced endometrial cancer after uh, at least one systemic therapy. And from the, the Lancet publication, 98% of those had received uh, platinum doublet. So we can probably extrapolate that to the other 50 or so patients who were not covered in that Lancet publication. Uh, the linvatinib, which is a VEGF, uh, platelet-derived growth factor alpha fibro fibroblast growth factor receptor uh, kit and RET inhibitor is dosed at 20 milligrams PO daily. Just to put it in perspective, the dosing in HCC is 12 milligrams. Uh, in combination with Everolimus for renal cell carcinoma, the dosing is 18 milligrams. And for th undifferentiated thyroid cancer, the dosing is 24 milligrams. So we're kind of right in the middle of the usual dosing range for lumbatinib at 20 milligrams. In conjunction with standard dose Pembro, 200 milligrams IV every three weeks. And those are both continued until unacceptable toxicity or disease progression, typically what you see in the setting. So with 94 patients, the overall response rate was 38.3%, complete response in 10 patients, which was 10.6%. So modest uh, efficacy here. Uh, the median duration of response was not reached, but in that Lancet publication of 50-some patients, 69% had a, who had, of the people who had a response, 69% of them, the response lasted at least six months. So that's pretty good, uh, you know, pretty good disease control, I would say. Now, this is a slower-growing disease, so you have to keep that in mind as well. As far as the toxicity, 21% of patients had to permanently discontinue due to adverse drug events due to, according to the, uh, the FDA update they released about this. Uh, the three most common reasons for discontinuation due to ADR, GI perforation or fistula, 2%, muscle weakness, 2%, and pancreatitis, 2%. 88% um, did have to have a dose reduction or interruption. So whenever you see immunotherapy and TKI, you should suspect this is going to be a fairly toxic regimen. You can go back and look at a phase one, yeah, yeah, a letter to the editor published in the New England Journal of Medicine that was basically saying this is a phase one study we did of ipilimumab, and I think it was vimurafenib, but it was definitely a BRAF inhibitor plus ipilimumab saying we had to stop this early because of so much hepatotoxicity. So not surprising that this was a pretty toxic regimen combining a multi-kinase inhibitor like lumbatinib and immunotherapy. Now, there's some discrepancy here between what the FDA report says and what's reported in that Lancet Oncology publication of 53 patients. In that Lancet Oncology publication, they're talking about 9% who had to stop the drug due to ADRs. Uh, a, one of the events was a grade 2 ischemic colitis, a grade 3 AKI, grade 3 transaminitis, grade 2 adrenal insufficiency, and one grade 5 intracranial hemorrhage. So someone died from a brain bleed. That's not reported in the FDA uh, information, it appears. Um, as far as most common toxicities, uh, increased creatinine in 80%. In 7% of those patients, it was a grade 3 or 4. Increased triglycerides, 58%. Only 4% grade 3 or 4. Uh, hyperglycemia in 53%. Hyponatremia in 42%. 13% of that was a grade 3 or 4 hyponatremia. Um, and when thinking back to the 2% of people who had to stop due to pancreatitis, an increased lipase occurred in 42%. And 18%, that was grade 3 or 4. Uh, fatigue, muscle pain, both 65%. Um, with the linvatinib, you saw hypertension in 65%, 38%. So like two out of five patients had a grade three hypertension, 38%, grade three or four. Um, 
hypertension. Diarrhea, fairly modest at 64% with only 4% of that being grade three or four. Somatitis, 43%. Hypothyroidism, 50%. Again, something you would expect. Uh, Palmer plantar erythrodiesthesia, or hand foot syndrome in 26% and rash in 21%. So nothing real surprising from a toxicity profile. Um, now, where does this come in, in in the role of therapy? So prior to this approval, this would have been a category 2B recommendation uh, from the NCCN. Um, you know, based on the results of this, there's going to be a phase 3 study of linvatinib and Pembroke compared to doxorubicin and paclitaxel, which is a little bit of an odd comparator. Um, you know, the, most people, I think, would say after advancing on carboplatin, paclitaxel, you would do um, uh, you would do a uh, single-agent chemotherapy. Uh, there's, you know, from what I can gather, and again, I, I don't work in, in, in Gynoc. Um, I have some experience from residency, but not, not in a while. Uh, and I saw a lot of Gynoc patients in the early days here in my practice, but, but not anymore. Uh, so there is... Um, Second-line paclitaxel from the GOG-129 had an overall response rate of 28% and complete response rate of 6.5%. That's pretty comparable to what we saw with Pembro and Lenvatinib with an overall response rate of 38% and a 10% CR rate. Um, so maybe, you know, numerically it looks a little bit better than just paclitaxel. Um, now this dose, or sorry, this... Um, Doxorubicin and paclitaxel phase three comparator for this linvatinib pember regimen is a little odd, and it seems to be based off of this regimen that looked at cisplatin and doxorubicin and paclitaxel compared to just cisplatin and doxorubicin. It was the three drugs was very toxic, um, had some good benefit, but because of the toxicity, most people uh, don't don't use it in in that uh, in that first line setting, let alone in a second line setting. So, uh, you know, another immunotherapy and TKI publication I think uh, uh, approval and I think that we are going to see more and more of those. So that's the pembrolimbatinib side of things from September 17th. In the afternoon of September 17th, um, the FDA approved apalutamide for metastatic castrate sensitive prostate cancer. This was based off the Titan study, which has been uh, described in great detail uh, the pros and cons of that on plenary session, another uh, oncology uh, podcast that's far superior to this one. Uh, I just want to break down two studies now. I'm not going to go in-depth on the apalutamide approval. Uh, it was approved last year, uh, and we talked about that at the time. Uh, it was approved, it got that kind of odd indication for non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Um, so I'm going to compare the Titan study, which is the study on which this approval of apalutamide was based for metastatic castrate-sensitive uh, prostate cancer, and the Enzymet study, which sounds like a brand name met metformin combination product, but it's actually the name of the study. So Titan is apalutamide, uh, Enzymet is enzalutamide. They're both published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Titan was published on May 31st of 2019, Enzymet on June 2nd of 2019. So two days later, Enzymet is published. Uh, the, both patient populations are, are metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. Uh, the sample size, the N, is, is 1, 000, 11, between 1,000 and 1,100 both. So, so same patient population roughly, same number of patients. In the Titan study, roughly 10% had received docetaxel uh, prior to enrollment. In Enzymet, about 16% had received docetaxel prior. Now, these are published at the same time. They were going on around the same time. And around the time they started creating patients is when the re results of charted 
were released, which showed that docetaxel had a whopping, I think like a median improvement overall survival of like 17 months in newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer patients who had high volume disease. That's where the benefit was, high volume disease, which if my memory serves me correctly, was four or more sites of, of METs with only one of those being vertebral bone METs. So four plus sites of bone METs um, with only one of those four being uh, vertebral. Now, the folks in Titan had 63% of patients who had high volume disease, and there was not a way for them to receive docetaxel concurrently, which had a 17-month improvement in median overall survival. Enzymet amended their protocol to allow patients to receive docetaxel. So in the Enzymet population, they had more, they had, uh, let's see, what was it? 52% of patients had high volume disease, and 45% total uh, were planned to receive docetaxel. So half the patients had high volume disease, about half were planned to receive docetaxel, probably the standard of care. That was not the case in Titan. 63% had high volume disease, none of them were allowed to receive docetaxel. Another th big difference in the, in the methodology of these studies is Enzymet compared androgen deprivation, androgen deprivation therapy uh, with enzalutamide compared to ADT with bicalutamide, flutamide, nilutamide, one of those early generation antiandrogens. Now, this is probably a fair comparison because you're comparing ADT plus antiandrogen to ADT plus antiandrogen. In Titan, it was ADT plus apalutamide versus ADT plus placebo. Now, it's not necessarily wrong, I think, to have placebo because at the time uh, before we had enzalutamide and apalutamide moving up early in the line of therapy, I don't think there was consistent uh, benefit that could be stated that an antiandrogen upfront, what we'd call combined antigen blockade, blockade, definitely improved overall survival in these patients. Uh, it was often done for patients with high-risk disease, but you know was not meant necessarily uh, the best practice in the eyes of the FDA, which is why Titan was able to get away with doing this. However, I think you got to give the Enzymet study some credit for comparing an apple to a different colored apple, so to speak, by having ADT plus enzalutamide versus ADT plus bicalutamide, for example. Uh, as far as the role of the sponsor, in Titan, the sponsor was, was involved in the design as well as editorial assistance with the manuscript. Whereas in Enzymet, they provided the drug, of course, and some financial support, but they were not the sole sponsor. The drug company was not the sole sponsor of Enzymet. There was also uh, monies that came from the Canadian Research Society and, and two other Australian government entities and some other funds as well. So, which was the better study? Yeah, Enzymet was the better study. Uh, which has the better data. Enzymet has the better data, I would say. Does that mean enzalutamide is better than apalutamide? Oh, we would need a head-to-head -head comparison to say that, but I would not hold my breath. Um, now, can't do this, shouldn't compare outcomes from one study to the other, but the 24-month overall survival data for Titan, 82.4% in the apalutamide compared to 73.5% in the placebo group, so about a 9% improvement in two-year median overall survival. In the Enzymet, uh, the three-year overall, overall survival was 80%, with enzalutamide compared to 72% with an early generation antiandrogen, so an 8% improvement in median overall survival, but a year later. So from an efficacy standpoint, at least from a ballpark, there's nothing that suggests one is far better or worse than the other, and I'd say the enzalutamide study has um, the stronger case for uh, because of the, the stronger study method, methodology. But hey, 
That's just my opinion. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of Onco Farm. Uh, I would encourage you to, to find us in the iTunes store. Give us a nice rating review. Tell us what you would like to hear more about. Uh, you could also reach out to me personally on on Twitter. I'm at FarmDeetNib. The podcast is at OncoFarmPod, both, both on Twitter and Instagram. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.